0: You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. I'm going to ask you a personal question, but unlike sometimes when I ask you, uh, I don't expect you to answer this one out loud, but I would like you to answer it in your heart. Is there a particular teaching in the Bible that you have just really struggled with? whether it's current or maybe even in the distant past, is there some Bible doctrine, some teaching of the Bible that you have just particularly struggled with? I can tell you for me, as a college student just down the road, many years ago, I really, I mean, can I underline that? I really struggled with the doctrine of predestination. (laughs) If you say, that's a big word, what's that mean? It means that God decides ahead of time who's going to be saved. And as an 18-year-old sitting in the college down the road, I really struggled with that. No doubt we all struggle with accepting one doctrine or another as we read our Bibles. Not, Not just intellectually, but I would say emotionally and even spiritually. And for many of us, by God's amazing grace, we come through the other side of our struggles actually stronger than we went in we come out the other side of our struggles more confident in God, more confident in his word. And yet while that might be true for some, we know that yet others struggle with particular teachings of the Bible and they walk away. They walk away. They say this is, this is too hard, this, this is too hard, this is too much, I can't swallow this one and they walk away from their previous profession of following Jesus. What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with this reality that sometimes people just walk away whenever they can't handle something from the Word of God? Join me, please. Join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. And for our guest today, again, another welcome to you. And uh, you're catching us in a series in the Gospel of John. Every Sunday, what we do here at CCC is we take a portion, uh, a plate-size amount of the Gospel of John, and we feast on it. (laughs) And this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. What we're going to do today is we're going to dip back into last week's passage, connecting the dots. For a season, for a season, Jesus was particularly popular in Galilee. Even as we saw last week, there were literally thousands, I would even guess tens of thousands of people in Galilee who were attracted to Jesus. These large groups of people really liked what they saw in Jesus. They, they enjoyed what he was doing. You know, that turning water into wine stuff, that's pretty neat. Um, hearing that uh, nobleman's son from a distance, that's amazing. They really liked what they saw in Jesus, and some of them would even say they would like what they experienced from Jesus. They enjoyed some of these benefits from Jesus that they had personally experienced. For thousands of them, they enjoyed that miracle across the lake whenever Jesus fed them with those five little loaves of bread and the two fish. They, they, they liked Jesus. If, if this were happening in our era and our culture, I would say that we would consider Jesus celebrity. But. This most recent teaching of Jesus. This disturbing declaration of Jesus. There in the Capernaum synagogue. Well that was just too much. That was just too hard to accept. Have you found John 6? Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it. They said this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. What are they referring to? What's hard? What's so hard to accept? Well, I'll tell you what. The passage last week was really long. We're not going to read it all. But join me for a few minutes in chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. You follow along as I read aloud. John 6, beginning at verse 51. The Word of God says, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. When Jesus said that, when Jesus declared that he was the bread that came down from heaven, the bread of life, that he was the only one who could give life, the people crowded into that Capernaum synagogue says, This is hard. How can we even listen to this? Well, what was so hard about it? What made it hard? Well, we might assume that what they're saying is this is hard intellectually. This is really hard to get the arms of my mind around. This is hard to understand. Now, there might be a little bit of that here. um, But quite frankly, I think most of the people there in that synagogue understood that Jesus was using figurative language. I think they knew he was talking in metaphor. That he wasn't some twisted guy talking about cannibalism. I think they knew he was talking figuratively. But, but there was something about what he was saying that just too much for them to grab intellectually in the sense that Jesus was clearly implying that he was greater than Moses, and Moses was their hero. And Jesus said some things that made him sound like he had a unique relationship with God, that his relationship with God was different than theirs. So there might have been some intellectual problems. There are an intellectual challenge to grabbing what Jesus was saying here, but I don't think that's the main point. In fact, the word hard here doesn't so much mean uh, difficult to understand as it means offensive. I think I would pick that word, offensive. The people are saying, what you're saying, Jesus, is offensive to us why what was was making that so difficult it was offensive to them in the sense that it was not only challenging their minds but even more significantly it was challenging their pride He, he was pushing on their pride their religious pride let's go back and review Jesus had made several claims here that they had a very difficult time swallowing one was he made a bold claim about himself didn't he he said I am the bread of life now, when he said that on the bread of life, can you hear the murmuring going on in the synagogue, maybe under people's breaths? Could you hear someone maybe next to you in the synagogue saying, Wait, what, what are you saying about yourself, Jesus? you, you think you're better than Moses? Are you, are, are, you, are you claiming to be the Messiah? I can't swallow that, Jesus. Jesus had also made a bold claim about people's need of salvation. That they were sinners in need of being rescued from damnation. Now try to stand in the sandals of the people in that synagogue. These were not outright pagans. These were religious people. These were religious people. In our culture, we would say good church-going people. And yet Jesus is clearly saying that they are sinners in need of rescuing from damnation. 52 and 53. 53. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, I truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have you have no life in you. He's telling these people they're lost, they're sinners in need of God's saving grace. And then thirdly, Jesus said something else that was offensive, and that was that these people, even these religious people, had no ability had no power in and of themselves to change their predicament. They they did not have the ability to, to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, we would say. Look at 43 and the first part of 44. Jesus answered them, Do not rumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I can hear this murmuring in the crowd again. Wait, Jesus. What are you saying about us? Are you saying we're like pagans or something? Or Are you saying that we don't have the, the religious wherewithal to change our situation? So how did Jesus respond to this grumbling? You know, by the way, if you read this passage carefully, you'll notice the people never directly took their offenses to Jesus. <laughs> they didn't complain directly to Jesus. They're just mumbling, mumbling among themselves they got this complaining attitude among themselves, whispering and nudging each other and muttering, and, but, and yet it says here that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew, in verse 61, Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. So what's Jesus going to do? If Jesus were like a lot of celebrities in our day, if he, if he were maybe like a politician, and he found out that what he just said offended people, what do you think he would do? If he were, like a lot of people today, public figures today. it would start backpedaling. Yeah, he sure would. He'd say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Maybe I, miss, maybe I misspoke. Maybe you misunderstood, you know, what?" and begin to soften and backpedal here. Because I don't want to lose the crowd, right? I mean, this is kind of neat. I have thousands of people looking for me. I mean, some of these people traveled the whole way across the lake just trying to find me here in Capernaum. This is kind of cool, having this followership here. And, you know, we would assume in our day that if Jesus were some sort of celebrity preacher, that he would try to appease the crowd in some way. And and yet, if you keep on reading here, you'll find out, interestingly, what Jesus does. He doesn't back off. He raises the stakes. Look at verse uh, 61 again. It says, do you take offense of this right at the end? Then verse 62, he says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus is going to say something here to make them realize that they're offense. They don't even realize what's ahead, what's coming. You know, Jesus had told them unequivoc- unequivocally That he was the bread that had come down from heaven. He says, you're offended by that? You're offended that I came down from heaven? That I clearly was telling you that my origins are in heaven itself? And that God the Father sent me as the bread of life? (coughs) You find it offensive that I came down from heaven? Well then, what what if you end up being one of those witnesses to my ascension? That I go back to my rightful place in glory? What if you see me not just coming down, but going up? Do you see me going up to heaven in my ascension to the place of glory that I had from eternity past? Then what will you do? So, sitting at my desk this past week, meditating on this passage, this old hymn came back to my mind. Thomas Kelly wrote it in the early 1800s. He said, "Look, ye saints!" By the way, this is one of my favorite hymns. "Look, ye saints." The sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now, from the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Sinners in derision mocked him, mocking thus the savior's claim. But what will it be like on that day when we see Christ glorified? <laughs> but saints and angels crowd around Him, sing His title, praise His name, crown Him, crown Him, spread abroad the victor's claim. And these people would mock Jesus and say, what's this talk, what's this talk Have you coming down from heaven? One day they'll see that same One who came down from heaven, ascended and glorified, seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And every knee will bow the sinners that mocked him will be on their faces before the king of kings and the lord of lords Jesus said will you be offended when you see that verse 63 Jesus said it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life Now, why would Jesus say that? Why would he say the flesh is good for nothing? It's the spirit that gives life. Why would he say that? Why would he say that now? Why would he say that now to these people? Well, because they'd been relying on the flesh. A lot of the people in that Capernaum crowd that day would have said, Hey, in fact, we're going to read this when we get to chapter 8. When we get to chapter 8, there's going to be people pushing back on Jesus and saying, hey, wait a minute. We're, we're Abraham's descendants. Who do you think we are? We're, we're Abraham's descendants. You know, we got, we got a right to go to heaven. And they were relying on the flesh. They were relying on their parentage. Because I'm of this line. Because I'm of a descendant, a physical descendant of, of Abraham. I have a right to heaven. And some of these people would relied on their own flesh, and they would have said, Jesus, why are you implying that we're sinners? We're, we're good law, capital L, we're good law-abiding citizens. We're moral people, Jesus. Why, why would you say what you're saying? And Jesus says, look, friends, the flesh counts for nothing. It's the Spirit who gives life. You know, the flesh never did make anyone right with God, and the flesh never will. You can't make yourself, I can't make myself acceptable to God. It must be the Spirit who comes and changes us, who gives us life. Verse 64, Jesus said, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus was not surprised by this. He was not caught off guard. He knew from the beginning, and I think it says from the beginning. I think it means from the beginning. (laughs) I think even before he said, let there be light. He already knew. He already knew that who it would be who would reject him, who would reject the bread of life and rather starve than come. And then Jesus says something fascinating in verse 65, doesn't he? He said, this is why. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus already had said that. It's recorded in verse 44. And now he's saying it again. He's saying no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. What's his point? I was reading a Bible study written by A.W. Pink years ago and he said this. He said, Jesus, he presses upon their minds their moral inability affirms their need of divine power working within them. It was very humbling, no doubt. It furnished proof that the flesh profiteth nothing. This would have increased their offense. Jesus is telling them, you think you're good people, you think you can make yourself acceptable to God, you think you're okay with God because of your parentage. Flesh counts for nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. Jesus was dealing with their pride. You see, my friends, without the sovereign, gracious work of the Father, no one would ever come to Christ to be saved. It is both a willful refusal and a moral inability. Sinners are both unwilling and unable to come to Christ of their own initiative. Haven't we already seen this in the Gospel of John? Jesus isn't saying something in John 6 that we haven't already read. Remember how John opens up the Gospel of John. Back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, do you remember that? If not, I'll read it to you. John writes right at the beginning of this Gospel, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And clear at the beginning of his gospel, John lays out this foundational premise. He says, people don't come to faith in Christ because of their parentage. They don't come to faith in Christ because of their religiosity. They don't come to faith in Christ because of their sincerity. If people are born again, they are born of God. God must... Give that life, or there is no life. You know, Jesus could read people's minds. He he did read people's minds. I can't. I I confess. I mean, I can't read my wife's mind after 42 years. Did I hear an amen? (laughs) I can't read minds. But I have a hunch. I just have a hunch. There are a number of you sitting there right now saying, wait a minute, Pastor Larry, wait a minute, Pastor Larry. I remember deciding to become a Christian. I remember. I can remember that time in my life when I was convicted of my sin and I decided to turn away from my sin and turn to Christ. How do you explain that? Huh? (laughs) Have I read anybody's minds? (laughs) No, that's human experience. I've said the same thing you know what you did I I won't argue with that at all you did you you decided to follow Jesus you decided to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ but the question I have for you is how in the world did that ever happen (laughs) how did it ever happen that you all of a sudden so to speak wanted to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ unbeknownst to you possibly. Maybe you weren't even aware of it. But what was going on was God was sovereignly doing a work in you to change you inside. And you might not even have realized that the, the, the sovereign surgeon was putting a new heart in you. That the sovereign surgeon was taking out your blind eyes and giving your eyes to see. That, that he was taking your deaf ears and giving your ears to hear. That old stony heart's gone and there's a heart of flesh. Your dead soul became alive. And you said, I want Christ. I want Christ. And yes, you did. But the only reason you wanted Christ was that he had done the miracle of sovereign grace in your heart, giving you a heart that would love the son that previously you would have rejected. I'm sorry, I've had a lot of old hymns in my mind lately. (laughs) But there's another old hymn that says, uh, I sought the Lord. And afterward, I knew He sought my soul to seek Him seeking me. It was not so much that I took hold of you, but that you took hold of me. And you know, as we grow in grace and we read our Bibles and and we see more in the Bible about God and His grace, we realize, oh, that's what happened to me. Oh, that's what happened to me. That God gave me. A dead soul, new life. Hmm. Let's go back to Capernaum. How are the people going to respond to this? Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. After this, many of his disciples, people who were, we would say, professing Christians, walked away. They rejected the teaching of Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus. They said, we just can't accept this. This is too much. This is intolerable. I can't stomach teaching like this. And they ended up rejecting Jesus himself. They walked away. They walked away from the bread of life. The only one the only one that could give them life, and they walked away. They chose to starve rather than come to the bread of life. There's a difference, my friends, between having a profession of faith and having the possession of faith. This is This not true in our day as well. This is not something isolated to a Capernaum synagogue 2,000 years ago. Are there not many people today who profess faith in Christ and yet do not possess Christ? Some people approach Christian truth as if it's some sort of buffet table. That I look at this buffet table of doctrine, I look at this buffet table of teaching, and I really like this one. I think I'll take that one. I don't like that one. I think I'll leave that one and Oh, that stuff over there? No, it's not for me, man. And approach Christian truth as if somehow we can, we can customize Christianity to, to fit our own preferences, you know. And, and, and I just want to customize my Christian, my Christian thought to, to be acceptable to myself, that I'm comfortable with it, you know. This is what it means to me. And they not only seek to customize Christian doctrine, they seek to customize the Christian life itself. Well, Why did you become a Christian? Well, I was having a hard time in life, and I thought maybe Jesus could make my life easier. I I just wanted to have a happier life, so I came to Jesus. Praise God if he makes your life happier. But my friends, Jesus didn't promise us an easy life. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you says in the Bible that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is on my mind because why we're here today, I have a firm belief from things I've been reading that maybe even today, maybe on this date, on the calendar, we are going to have a number of brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan dying for their faith. There are some right now who are being charged with a death sentence for being Christ's followers today. And we might meet these people in heaven and realize, oh, we prayed for you. That you would be strong when you died for the faith on March fourth, two thousand eighteen. And we have it easy here. But what if it gets hard, friends? What what if it gets hard for us, or our kids, or our grandkids? Is Christianity something we can just custom design when, when it makes life better for us, easier for us? That we walk away from Christ when it gets hard, when we have to suffer for the gospel? you see, these people wanted something from Jesus that he wasn't going to give them. They wanted a temporal king. We read that a few weeks ago in the earlier parts of chapter 6. What they wanted, Jesus wasn't giving. And what he was giving, they didn't want. They did not want the bread of life. But praise God. Praise God. If we could somehow imagine ourselves in that Capernaum synagogue when Jesus insists of being the bread of life, that unless you eat of me, unless you drink of me, you have no life in you. You see the people firing out. And as we stand there in the back of the synagogue, we see it just increasingly become more and more vacant, more and more empty, as person after person heads for the door. Until it seems deafeningly silent. And we realize there's only about a dozen people left. And Jesus turns to those 12. In verse 67, he says, do you you want to go away as well? Or we could translate it, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus was optimistic. He was confident, I should say, that they were going to stick with him. And praise God for his grace to Peter. Verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Clearly the Spirit of God has been a work in Peter's life. And he says, Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. There's, there's, There's no other way. No one else has the bread of life. No one else can give us eternal life. Jesus, you're it. If we leave you, there's nowhere else to go. And he professes Christ as the Messiah. You see, friends, a few minutes ago as that Capernaum Synagogue was crowded with people. Almost everyone in that Capernaum Synagogue would have professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Almost all of them. And yet now there's a handful left. One of the evidences of true conversion is perseverance in the faith. It isn't that you prayed a sincere prayer one day or you said the right words. It's perseverance in the faith. It's that you stick with Jesus. Temporary disciples of Jesus are not true disciples of Jesus. Later, John would write several letters. The first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he said, listen carefully, John would later write, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Now, there's a lot of prepositions there, but did you follow what he was saying? He's saying there's lots of people who profess to be part of the church. They profess to be Christians. But they turn their back on Christ and his people. And they go out never to return. We're not talking about a temporary slippage here. But we're talking about people who go back to their B.C. ways. They go back to their B.C. lives. And John says the very fact that they went out didn't come back. The fact that they went out shows, makes it clear, that they never were true disciples. So what's the difference? We have this large group that didn't stick and the small group that did. Why, why do some people eat of the bread of life while other people choose to starve rather than come to him? What, what makes the difference? What, why do some people starve and some people eat of the bread of life? Look at verse 65. Jesus repeats this. He wants us to get it. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. That's the second time he said it in the same setting. The Bible is quite clear in its teaching that all of us, all of us, have been so affected and infected by sin that we are both unwilling and unable to turn to God, turn to Christ, in faith. God must do the miracle of making our dead souls live or we would never be right with him through Christ. I was sitting at my desk and I started writing out verses where I see this and it's a rather long list so I had to pick. Let me read you several of these. Probably the most well-known ones, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, Paul writes in verses 10 through 12, this is quite clear, listen carefully. Children, you can listen to this too. None is righteous. No, not one. This is the word of God, friends. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one Now if you want to picture this with me, there's what, 7 billion people or so alive in the world right now? Well if you took all the 7 billion people in the world right now and you could somehow line them all up and then you could find all the people who've ever lived and add them to the crowd. So we have billions of people lined up. And apart from, listen carefully, apart from the intervening grace of God. If you were to shout to that crowd of billions, any of you who want to turn your back on your sin and Turn to Christ in faith. Take a step forward. You would watch a crowd of billions. And not a single person would take a step forward. Not a single one. That's the word of God. That's the word of God. God says, no one, no one seeks God. Why not? Romans 8, eight Paul would write a little bit later, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a problem of ability here. He wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. We could go on and on, but there's this clear teaching in the Bible that apart from God's intervening grace, no one seeks God. And yet... And yet, Jesus said in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Hmm. So some people are going to come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then those reassuring words later in verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then if you keep on reading verses 39 and 40, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. All that he's given me. I'm not going to lose any of them. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him will have eternal life. And you say, how does that work? Do you see it, my friends? Do you see it in the Bible? That God has had a plan all along. He's had a plan all along In Ephesians chapter 1, it says He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Sometimes people look at Jesus with a sense of pity. You know, poor Jesus. He came and did everything He could do, you know. He did everything He could. And all these people walk away. Poor Jesus. Like He sure must be disappointed. He, He sure must... Feel like this isn't working. My friends, Jesus, Jesus knew that he was not on a fool's errand. When Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to this planet, he knew for certain that he was on no fool's errand, that he was on a mission that would be successful. Because in the eternal councils of the past, the Father had promised him an inheritance of the nations, that Jesus would have a people that the Father gave him a people that he was to come and redeem. And Jesus knew that he would be successful in that mission, that he would redeem a people for himself, the elect, the bride of Christ, the people of God. However you want to say it, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, church. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." you may proclaim the, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light you and I my friends are objects of his sovereign grace Jesus knew even as the people walked away that his mission was not a failure that he came to redeem his people from their sins how that happen? how does it happen well he sovereignly takes blind eyes and makes them see he sovereignly takes deaf ears and makes them hear he sovereignly takes hearts that don't care about Jesus and gives them a heart of flesh that does love Jesus he takes dead souls and makes them alive Gladie and I were talking just a day or two ago about Ephesians chapter 2 and in Ephesians chapter 2 at the beginning it says and you were dead not just sick You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. Does it now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then, my friends, the next two words are some of the most precious words you will ever read in your Bible. But God. Here we were, friends, without hope and without Christ. We we were condemned. We were in a predicament that we couldn't fix. That we were by nature children of wrath. Children of God's wrath. But God, Paul writes, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And you say, why do some people hear the voice in common? Others hear the same voice and turn a deaf ear. Why do some people look at the bread of life and say, I want to feast on him when others make a wretched choice and rather starve than come to the only one who can give them life? It is the grace of God that any of us, that any of us come to the bread of life. So how are we supposed to respond to this passage? Let me talk to those of you here today who are not yet followers of Christ. Some of you children, some of you teens, and some of you adults. Listen, listen, young friends, older friends, listen to the astonishing, astonishingly gracious promise of Jesus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. What an astonishingly gracious promise from the lips of our Savior. He's saying, come to me. And I ask you today, will you abandon all of your foolish and fruitless efforts to make yourself acceptable to God? It will not work. The flesh counts for nothing. You cannot... Make yourself acceptable to God. It's foolish and it's fruitless. But will you come today to the bread of life and say, please give me an ill-deserving sinner new life? And he will. For those of us that are already followers of Jesus Christ, we're recipients of his sovereign grace, how are we supposed to respond to a passage like this? I I can think of a number of things, but let me, for sake of time, just mention a couple. Uh, One I want to mention is humble courage. Humble courage. And what I mean by that is this. You and I have been given the assignment by our leader, Jesus Christ, to take the gospel to our world. And if Jesus experienced this kind of rejection, ought not we to assume that we could also experience rejection? Rejection? You're going to talk to people at your work, your school, your family table who snub their nose at Jesus Christ. And the temptation is going to be to try to make it more palatable, to make it more acceptable so you don't suffer rejection. I don't want my friends to reject me. I don't want people at work, people at my school thinking somehow I'm weird. I, I want to be accepted. I want to be popular. Friends, if we want to be popular, we want to be accepted, we're going to end up Altering the gospel to the point that it's no gospel at all. And We need to have the humble courage to stick with the gospel that Jesus preached. We need to preach the same gospel that Jesus preached. The exclusive gospel that salvation is found in Christ and him alone. He alone is the bread of life. And last, you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not have life. Jesus said that. Are we saying that? Are we saying that about our Lord Jesus? We need to have humble courage to preach the same gospel, share the same gospel that he did. But the other thing that comes to my mind as a response is humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. That for many of us in this room, we're already believers. We're already recipients of His grace. And as we feast on Christ, as we feast at the banquet table of grace, what should be going on in our minds is this humble gratitude. Lord, why was I a guest? Lord, was, why, why was I a guest? Why... Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? One of the dominant characteristics of people who are truly converted is a humble gratitude that we live with a gospel sweetness because we know I have no right to be here at the banquet table of I have no right to be here in and of myself. It is all of grace. And we live with this humility. We live with this gratitude. We live with this gospel sweetness.